Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of No Meat Athlete Radio. I am Matt Frazier, and today I've got a special guest. Her name is Pamela Ferguson. She's a registered dietitian and a Ph.D. in nutrition and one of the members of our Toronto Nomad Athlete Running Group, who I actually met when I was in Toronto. I think, Pamela, actually, I believe I met you. No, I didn't meet you. I, I first came in contact with you in line for dinner at the Remedy Food Conference. You were behind me talking to someone about your nutrition practice. Uh, and, and then I didn't realize it was you until the next day when we met with the Toronto group uh, that, that you mentioned that you, you, know, you said the same thing about your nutrition practice. And I finally put it together. I think that's exactly right, and I didn't realize that it was you either. I had uh, I had heard you um, on your podcast, but I hadn't actually met you in person, so I didn't realize that was you. And so, yeah, when uh, we figured it out, when we met up with the rest of the Toronto No Meat Athlete group for coffee. Yeah, so I am looking forward to this episode. Um, it is a different type of episode than than we've done in the past, and I kind of realized that when I was trying to put together questions to ask you. Um, I realized what the reason I wanted to have you on, aside from your knowledge about nutrition, which anyone who read your recent guest post on No Meat Athlete, which was called 21 Kid-Friendly Ideas and Recipes to Help Them Love Vegan Foods, uh, would know, you know, that you, you know a lot about nutrition, you're a mom of four kids, and that's all awesome. So I think that there's a lot to talk about in that realm. But what was really, really interesting to me, uh, just in meeting you and talking to the group, is the amount of stuff that you manage to do to pack into your life uh and it seems i mean i'm you know i don't know you well so i don't know for sure but it seems that it's all kind of done with a sense of balance and poise and you just struck me as someone who who really has it together when it comes to a healthy meaningful lifestyle and i feel like so many people just because of the way the world is it's said over and over but just how stressful things are in our culture and what the world is today that there are so many people who don't have it together and who who just you know, are struggling, just feeling overwhelmed, like it's all too much. And how could I possibly even think about healthy food when I've got this and this and this? And you, you've got the healthy food handled. I mean, of course, not just because of your knowledge, but because of the, the steps you've taken to, to make it an important priority in your life. You've got that, but then you've got all this other stuff that you do, including ultra marathons, some speed walking, uh, the business that you run. You take your kids, they, the group told me to, uh, you guys go abroad now and then and do, do some homeschooling type stuff in different countries. So, I mean, I think it's just amazing that you managed to do all this stuff. And that's really what I want to get into today. And I don't know exactly how we'll get in there or what the route will be, but um, I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about that today. Well, thanks, Matt. And um, yeah, you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see um, that I'm managing to do all these things successfully. But when you put it that way, yeah, I guess there are quite a few things um, on my plate. And definitely we do keep good nutrition at the center of it. And I do I do have some good tips uh, to share with the rest of the No Meat Athlete um, listeners about how to do that, how to balance, and how to um, make sure that nutrition stays on point through all of our busy lives and how to stay fairly calm and mindful in the midst of um, a lot of priorities. Good, good. Well, that should be fun then. Uh, why don't we start with with just a little bit of background about you, your story. I mean, I've mentioned that you're an RD and a PhD, uh, but can you just tell, I mean, how did you, how did you arrive at, at that place? And I know you've, you've been all over the world kind of en route to, to getting where you are now. So can you just kind of give us a little bit of the backstory? 
Sure. Well, um, I studied nutrition and I was always really committed to working with people who had barriers and challenges to accessing good nutrition. I was interested in social justice. Um, I worked in uh, Vancouver's downtown east side, which is a community in Vancouver facing multiple challenges, lots of people who are homeless, um, lots of issues um, with drug use and prostitution. Um, I worked there particularly um, working with Canadian Aboriginal people who were um, living in that urban area on diabetes prevention and on HIV and nutrition. And um, I also worked at the Vancouver Farmers Market. And I, I loved that. I loved working there. But I really felt that um, I wanted to be more at the forefront of where HIV and nutrition was at the time. So I went on and did a master's and eventually a PhD working in Malawi, um, looking at severe malnutrition and HIV in children and then eventually went on to work as well with adults. I moved to um, Liverpool and then Washington, D.C., where I worked for an agency called Food and Nutrition Technical Assistance, providing technical assistance to projects funded by USAID um, in countries, mostly in Africa, um, where they were running a program for nutrition and HIV. And that was just an amazing experience. I got to travel um, almost half of my job was travel and uh, doing teachings and trainings and working with ministries of health. And it was, it was really exciting. Um, but, you know, family life started to catch up with us. And uh, we had our daughter Fern while we were living in Washington, D.C. So we have a little American girl. And uh, she traveled with me because I was breastfeeding for the first two years of her life. But then after two years, we would have had to start paying full fare for her on the, air, on, the, on the airplane. And it was time to make a decision, you know, did I want to stop breastfeeding? Did, you know, what we were going to do? And we decided that we really wanted to adopt. Um, and so we made the decision to move uh, to Canada um, in order to be able to begin the process of adoption. Because so we came what, back you, here to is, Toronto. Is it, why, is it, why would you not be able to adopt in the U.S.? Is it just harder? You, it's not harder. It's um, because neither of us were American. I'm ah, Canadian. Okay. My husband is British. We could adopt in the U.S., but you need to at least have permanent residency status. And we would have had to wait at least five years for that to kick into effect. And we didn't want to wait that long. We wanted to get the process of adoption started earlier. So we made the decision to come to Canada. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so here then, we are. Then, so then, where where did uh, when did when did it become a plant based diet? I mean, was that was that part of your focus as you were learning about nutrition, or was that something that came along later? You know, I was um, vegetarian for a long time um, when I was doing my studies um, to become a dietitian. Um, I mostly for environmental reasons. I read Diet for a Small Planet and became really convicted about the need kind of for environmental reasons, but also kind of world hunger reasons. I became um, convinced that we shouldn't be eating meat and became vegetarian, was vegetarian for a really long time. Um, and then I did actually lose my way for a little while, just not really connected to other vegetarians. I started to focus more on my PhD and my studies and kind of lost my way a bit with that. And then through moving back to North America and getting reconnected here, deciding I wanted to open my private practice here, 
getting reconnected to um, what's happening um, in terms of um, diet and the issues that we're facing, I became convinced that we need to be following uh, whole foods, plant-based diet and, um, you know, became vegan and, uh, and, you know, that has really been such a big part of our family and um, the way we raise our children. So how with, with this traditional, for lack of a better word, I guess, background in nutrition, I mean, how, how were you not, um, and, you know, it just, it, to me, it seems like people who come from, from there are, are very likely to, you know, be really indoctrinated in kind of the status quo ideas and, and kind of resistant to big change ideas like this. So, I mean, how did, <laughs> were you hesitant at all? Because like, I don't know if everyone around you was, was, or at least your peers from, from school. I mean, I know you weren't in school anymore when you made this choice, but were you, was there that resistance to it for you? I think that, um, you know, my education, I wouldn't say that they were um, against vegetarian or veganism. And, you know, um, dietitians in general do recognize that vegetarianism and veganism is a healthy way to eat. However, we weren't taught necessarily that this was the number one way we should be promoting that everyone should eat. It was like one way of eating. It was a healthy way of eating. Um, so I wouldn't say I was resistant to it, um, although, you know, we were certainly taught about, you know, the four food groups and the value of dairy and things like that. So it was an eye opener to me to go back again. And when I wanted to open my own practice, counseling people here in Toronto, I really wanted to be at the forefront of where's the science at? What can we be doing? And I just was it was so clear to me. And was I resistant um, because of my education, maybe a little bit, but I was very open to listening, to learning. I was open to the science. I was open to having, you know, we're taught certainly um, within our practice to be um, evidence-based. And when you're presented with the science, you know, uh, you have to be open to changing your practice and to um, going with what is the very best. And I truly believe that a plant-based diet is the way that we should all be eating. Good. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about what you do in your practice. First of all, it's in a really cool area and I don't remember the name of it, but it was like the really cool, like hippie kind of area of the Toronto. Kensington market. Yes, yeah. Yes. That's what it is. Yes. Which is just yeah. like this. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it kind of reminded me of parts of San Francisco and just different, I don't know, hippie stuff and lots of fruit stands and yeah, I love having spot. my practice there because I'm just surrounded by what I really think is is a good vibe. And I think it's good for my clients to come to that part of the city and reconnect with just seeing so much healthy produce and so many fantastic restaurants. And yeah, and I love being there too because I can go out for lunch and there's like so many different beautiful vegan options within uh, a few minutes walk from my door of my office. So it's a fun place to work and, um, and it's just, it has the right vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what then do you do with a typical client? Is it, is it kind of meal planning stuff or is it, is it just talking to people about, about, uh, health problems or I mean, what, what do you do? So some clients do come to me, um, 
with weight issues or with health problems. Some clients come um, who are runners. I do get runners come who are looking, you know, for advice about optimizing performance and maybe dealing with trying to fit in healthy eating around a busy training and lifestyle schedule. Um, and I do also get some people coming to me who have maybe um, issues with their relationship with food and they're looking to build like healthier habits around food and mindful eating. Okay. So, so, so let's say someone does want to build healthier habits um, and is kind of the person I described before who, what, just when they think about it, I mean, they know it's a priority. It needs to be a priority. Uh, maybe there's even some urgency, but it just doesn't seem doable. I mean, it just seems like maybe if they're an omnivore and let's say they want to become vegetarian or vegan, uh, or or they're already vegetarian or vegan and they want to go the whole food route. I mean, mm-hmm. but they're just overwhelmed. Like, what what is your approach? Like, what is is there a framework that you operate from that says here's how we can begin and here's here's the way to streamline it so that it it is doable, or or is it more uh, case by case than that, where where you kind of look at what they're doing and and have really specific recommendations? Of course, we look at the individual person, but I do think that there are some things that can apply across the board. And one thing um, that I think is a good place to start from, and I think you have one of these posts. I have a post like this on my blog, and I think you have one too, which is kind of a um, a pantry, like a basic pantry of what to have in stock if you're wanting to eat a whole foods plant-based diet. And I think that's kind of a good place to start is making sure your pantry is full of, um, you know, the beans, the grains, um, the uh, maybe Bragg's aminos or those kinds of things to add those um, lovely unami flavors. Um, And then also uh, having a schedule of meal planning in place. So I think a lot of people just kind of come home from work and they're so hungry and they're tired or maybe they've already been for their run and they just need to eat and they're not organized so they don't know what to eat and so they just grab something quick that may not be healthy or they eat out all the time. And so I think just taking that bit of time to plan and organize, if you have the pantry in place and you have all the staples in place that you need, then I tend to... Um, do my shopping on a Saturday. My kids and I often shop together. We'll come home. We'll do a little bit of prep on the Saturday, just maybe chopping up some veggies and putting them in glass containers in the fridge um, so that everything is organized and looks attractive. But then on a Sunday, we tend to do more um, cooking and being organized. So cooking up um, a nice big batch. Often we'll do chili on a Sunday um, and we'll eat the chili on Sunday, but then save some of it so that it can be used again later in the week. And I'll often save that chili. And don't tell my kids this because I don't think they've really figured it out, but that chili reappears on Tuesday for Taco Tuesdays. And (laughs) (laughs) it's the filling for the tacos, but I think the kids think it's an entirely new meal. I don't think they've really put it together that it's like actually the leftover chili. And it's just little tricks like that that um, we can use um, and reinventing the staples that are in um, our fridge and finding new ways to use them um, and being a little bit organized with a bit of a meal plan, prepping ahead. So I always try to cook, say, two meals and have the meals completely ready in the fridge. Plus, I always cook ahead a big batch of quinoa or brown rice or um, some other kind of grain and have that ready to go. And then I usually um, bake some sweet potatoes, um, chop up some peppers, um, have those kind of things just ready to go um, and in the fridge so that I can easily throw together like 
a quinoa power bowl or make my own homemade um, veggie, black bean and sweet potato burgers because the potatoes are already roasted, the quinoa is already cooked, and it's so easy to put it together once you have um, all of the food pre-prepped and ready to go in the fridge. Yeah, and are those are those meals that you would heat up to eat later, or are you just eating them right out of the fridge? Oh, so definitely, uh, the, there's some things that would be um, pre-cooked and already in the fridge, and so, yeah, we just heat those up. So, um, you know, if I made a curry, let's say, um, in and just kept in the fridge, then I would heat that and then serve it with um, maybe some rice during the week, but... Uh, the other things like the um, sweet sweet potatoes that are roasted or the quinoa that's cooked, those then become the ingredients in um, a veggie burger that I might cook later in the week. So it's so much faster to make, like one of my favorite meals and one of my kids' favorite meals is our sweet potato black bean burgers with quinoa. And um, it's so much faster to make that burger Um, If you've already roasted the sweet potato and you've already cooked the quinoa, then you're just assembling and then cooking rather than starting with everything from scratch. Right, right. I like that. I mean, I think think when we talk about being prepared and prepping the ingredients ahead of time so that, you know, that obstacle is one less obstacle between you and a healthy meal at the end of a really hard work day or whatever when you don't have a lot of time. Um, We always talk about that in terms of prepping, but you don't often hear people mention like actually cooking the food. And so then you've got a meal that literally is ready to go. And, and, you know, we talk about leftovers, making extra so that you have more for the next meal. But uh, I don't hear too many people recommend actually cooking a meal and then and then just sticking it in the fridge for later. But I think that that's a really good strategy. I mean, if, if that's what it takes for, for someone to, to make it happen, then, you know, I think yeah, that's Yeah, I like to cook at least one meal completely ready and in the fridge. At one night of the week, all I have to do is heat it up. That's uh-huh. it. And the other meals are meals like, you know, that quinoa power bowl that I mentioned. It's like it's so fast to do because if you've got the quinoa already ready, um, then I just I vary through the year depending on what's in season. So I'll go shopping on the weekend. I'll look what's on sale, what's in season. And um, like right now, for example, our kids are loving Brussels sprouts and they're in season. And so I'll um, have some roasted Brussels sprouts in there. And we're just coming into the season now where we're starting to eat more sweet potatoes and squash. Whereas in the summer, we are having more, probably more leafy greens, more roasted corn, that kind of thing um, in the bowl. So even though we eat the, the quinoa power bowl all year, we vary what goes into the bowl depending on what's in season. Okay. And so how, how old are the kids? My oldest is Bly, and he's 13. And Cedar um, is almost 12. He'll be 12 in October. And Willow is uh, 10, and May is 6. Okay, and and you've had and they've eaten eaten hundred percent plant based or clo- have have were you plant based when you began adopting? Or, so sorry? right, so this is this was a big story of transition for <laughs> our kids because our kids came to us a little more than four years ago, and at the time Bly was nine, Cedar was seven, and Willow was six. Um, and our kids had lived in, um, you know, they'd had really complex lives and they'd lived in lots of different foster homes. Um, and they kind of really favored things like craft dinner. They loved like hamburger helper and, you know, they liked a lot of, um, convenience processed fast foods, you know, and, um, 
we started on a, on a slow transition with them, really starting to open their eyes to the beauty of veggies and fruits and slowly introducing them to hummus and then to um, more pulses. And they always, you know, there were always some foods that they did like. They, there were some veggies. And I think that's the key is to start with what they do love. They love smoothies from the start. So we were able to build from that. And they, there were some veggies that they loved. They always loved peanut butter and nut butter. So we made some sauces with um, nut uh, butters and things like that. It's just to build from familiar tastes. Um, but yeah, and I do believe that um, transitioning to a plant-based diet has been part of um, the uh, experience for our kids in becoming connected to our family and also becoming calmer because I, you know, there is research to show that um, that a plant-based diet is helpful for our mental health as well as our physical health. And um, I think that just being, eating a plant-based diet and our kids, we really um, try to build in them their own values and their own um, connection to being vegan. We don't just say, you know, this is what we're doing and so you have to do it. But like we've watched Cowspiracy with our kids. We talk to our kids about um, the environmental aspects of diet as well as animal welfare. And um, we want them to build that into their identity and see themselves as people with power and people with power to do good and to change the world. And I think that diet is part of that. And I think that actually eating a plant-based diet has been part of helping our kids to become calmer to love themselves more and value and accept themselves more, but also to build empathy with and understand um, others better too. Yeah, I really like that. I think uh, there's a lot there that, that to me reminds me of, of our family and our children and the relationship they have with food and particularly a plant-based diet. Uh, and I think, you know, it just seems like that the people who, who do this, and maybe it's a matter of if somebody's if somebody cares enough to be eat a plant-based diet, particularly a whole food plant-based diet, then, you know, they probably are somebody who who is kind of on top of things and and is generally going to do a good job raising kids. And I'm not by any means saying that that's the only type of diet in which parents could raise good kids. Of course not. Um, but it seems to me that when I meet people who who do have it all together with food and they raise their kids plant based, and there's this understanding and they take the time to do that, it always seems that they raise really strong, mentally healthy kids. And it just seems like people have a good perspective. Um, and and I you know I don't know how these kids turn out when they get to be. 20 and if they still stay plant-based or how it all goes. But uh, I just always have the sense that there's this, there's this kind of strong connection with, with food and, and that when that food is sort of a central thing to the family's identity, uh, there's, there's something special that happens in just my anecdotal experience of, of my family and, and seeing others do it. I think you're exactly right. And I think that if you're the kind of parent that's taken the time to really think about food and be mindful about food and you've come around to deciding that plant-based diet is what's right for you and for your family um, and you've done that research and that learning and that growing, um, then you are probably the kind of person that's helping your kids also to build those critical thinking skills around maybe not just diet but other things like not just accepting the status quo but starting to ask questions and make decisions for yourself and um, I think that diet is a really big part of that. I think what we eat every day is one of the things that we have the biggest impact on our own health, our own bodies, but also on the planet, on the environment, and also 
impact on animals too. And when we can feel good about that and we can feel that we are resting in the knowledge that we're making healthy decisions and we're always seeking the opportunity to know better and do better, then um, we build an identity around that. And it's a positive identity. It's, a, it's, it's one that builds self-esteem and builds confidence in kids. Yeah, I, I like what you said there a lot um, in terms of, of, I mean, I, got, I just think of like us teaching the kids that we are choosing to do something different, right? Because I think a lot of people are really afraid of being different. Of course they are. Yes. Um, and, and especially kids, right? It, it's, not, it's not usually uh, a positive thing to be the only one who eats a certain way, who does things a certain way, whether it's eating or something else. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a lot of power in, in saying like, yes, this is really different from what most people do. And the reason we're doing it is, is all these other things and having the kids really understand why that is. I think that's a very, very powerful thing that you can do as a parent. Yeah. My kids are always telling me that they're, I'm showing their food to their, uh, friends at school and getting their friends to try it. And I think, you know, there's different reactions. Some kids are like, ew, what's that? And other kids are really interested and uh, they want to taste it and they want to know all about it and want to know why they're eating this way. And we live in a pretty cool um, neighborhood and a lot of progressive people. So, you know, it's not like our kids are the only ones eating plant-based foods, but um, I love it that our kids are out there um, explaining for themselves why this diet is interesting to them and why they eat this way. And I think it's a great experience for them to, to be able to explain their own choices too. So I hadn't heard you mention protein yet uh, or any other macronutrient for that matter. Is that because you don't think about those things or is it just something that is kind of an afterthought? Yeah, I really believe that when you're eating a variety of whole-based plant, whole foods, plant-based diet, eating um, a variety of foods is the key. And I tend to not worry too much about like counting grams of protein or anything like that. We eat tons of beans and lentils. Like I, I think our kids probably eat some kind of bean or pulse probably every day. For sure, we wouldn't go two days without eating them in our house. So that's mm-hmm. one of the key ways that our kids uh, and all of us are getting um, our protein. But also nuts, we add um, chia and flax and... Um, hemp seeds into our salads and into our smoothies. Um, and I'm always like putting those seeds into places that maybe the kids wouldn't even know or realize that they're there. So they're always going into when we bake, we tend to bake together on the weekend. I'm always putting those um, seeds in. I put them into my chili. Um, and so, you know, always looking for little ways to boost the nutrition. Um, another good thing to do is at this time of year, um, when you're baking squash or baking sweet potatoes, just to keep some of that mashed or pureed in the fridge and it can go and get mixed into sauces or, um, chili. Like if you're making a pasta sauce, just add in some, um, mashed sweet potato or mashed squash. And, uh, it gives a really lovely flavor, but also good texture. And the kids won't even see it or know it, that it's in there, but it's really increasing the, um, micronutrient and fiber content of, um, the diet. So I don't worry about it. I just eat, I eat and get our kids to eat a variety of foods, but, um, I think that you can be always looking for ways of boosting uh, your nutrition even beyond what it looks like on the plate. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you. What I'm curious about is do you think with something like protein, because you mentioned the beans and adding seeds and things like that, um, 
do you think it's important to look for ways to boost something like that in particular? I, I don't just mean boosting nutrition because, of course, adding adding vegetables into smoothies and sauces and things when you can is is a wonderful thing to do because you're you're you know putting more dense micronutrition in there uh, in in what otherwise might you know be a thing of grains or something that just isn't doesn't have all that much micronutrition or, or nutrients per calorie. Um, but do you think it's important for people to, to worry about something like protein, like boosting it with with beans and seeds, or do you really think that if you just didn't even think about it, because this is kind of where we are, and I'm and I'm always kind of wondering. I don't know. I, I I do think it's it works really well for us, but I wonder what other people think. People think. Um, can it be a total? You're not even concerned about it. You're you eat a variety of stuff. You eat lots of healthy fruits and vegetables and everything else. Um, do you think it's important to try to boost things like protein, or does it just not matter? When it comes to protein, I don't think we need to worry about boosting at all. I think actually um, as long as we're eating a variety of foods, then protein is completely taken care of and I'm not worried about it. I think when it comes to things like making sure we're getting our omega-3s and um, getting enough iron, getting enough calcium, then I think it's worth um, paying a little bit of extra attention um, to our nutrition and it never hurts to... Um, add in, like I said, like a, a bit of extra hemp hearts, that kind of thing into a meal, um, just to support growing bodies and also to support, um, us as, um, you know, athletic and active parents. I think it's good to pay attention to those things. I think that the main and by far most important thing is just to eat a variety of whole foods and, um, that absolutely will take care of your protein. You don't have to worry about boosting your protein. Do you need to worry or think about boosting your omega-3s? Maybe paying a little bit of attention there is, is worth it. And, um, you know, looking a little bit at um, taking chia seeds, that kind of thing, just for an extra boost is not a bad idea. Yeah, we're on the same page there. I mean, I think I think there are a few things that that can potentially or, or more likely be deficient in in fully plant based diets, and protein just isn't one of them. But there are right. certainly right. some that that you should think about, maybe even supplementing with, uh, which we can talk about in a minute if you'd like. Uh, I'm curious though, do you? So it sounds like I mean, you you do things in much the same way that we do, with not not counting anything, not having numbers of anything around your food. Uh, are, are there clients you encounter who? For whom that just doesn't work, for whom that, not, not that it, w- it wouldn't work if they could do it, but for whom that mindset doesn't work just because they've been so ingrained in some other way or maybe their personality is just a certain way where they need to have numbers involved in their food and know they're getting exactly this amount of this and that. I think that there are some people who are very tied up in that. And I don't mind working with people counting things for a while. I think it's fine to use it as an education tool. So I think there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, inputting your diet for, you know, a few weeks, let's say, into my fitness pal or something just to give yourself that reassurance like, oh, actually, you know what, it is working out. I am actually getting everything I need. And also, um, you know, it's a learning tool too to see just how much nutrition there is in different foods, to see which foods are more nutritionally dense, to get an idea maybe of um, the amount of nutrition you're taking in. Um, just get an idea of, you know, if let's say you're stopping every afternoon for a beautiful big slice of vegan brownie, just see maybe how much that's adding into your calories in the day and just be mindful of it, just be aware of it. So I think there's nothing wrong with counting for a while as a learning tool, but do we need to keep on counting? No, I don't think so. And I would encourage my clients to move away from that just to, um, I don't think we need to do that. And I think that this is like eating a whole foods plant-based diet is 
is a wonderful way to free yourself of the need to do that. And I think hand in hand with that, we can be becoming more mindful of our bodies, recognizing when we're full, recognizing what we need, um, recognizing eating because we're hungry, not be, not just because it's kind of time to eat or because we're maybe feeling um, maybe a bit emotional and we're feeding our feelings, that kind of thing. But um, really starting to get in touch with our bodies and, and um, recognizing our own cues for hunger and satiety instead of becoming divorced from those things and just eating um, based on, uh, you know, some kind of cycle of, of reward and punishment or something like that that we can get into sometimes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important part of the, the answer to how do you have so much time. I think part of it begins with not putting a lot of I mean, putting energy into food, sure, right? Lots of lots of preparation and things like that. But as far as as stressing about it and worrying about hitting this and that number and getting exactly this amount of different things, uh, I think that you know, that can take up a lot of mental energy for sure and probably actual time for people too who have to, if they're gonna sit down and actually calculate things and find all that. And I think when people think about you know, overhauling their diet and starting to eat healthy, I think a lot of the the conversation in their head is around those ideas of having to make sure you're hitting all these numbers just because that's what we've that's we've kind of been exposed to so much. So uh, I think I think that's a really important point and and part of the reason that that you do have time for lots of other stuff, uh, including what you the other thing you just said is that when you pay attention to your body and asking if you actually are hungry or not, uh, I think most people, if they actually did that, would probably eat somewhat less than they than they do, and that means that means fewer meals throughout the day, and that means less times when you have to take the time to eat food and and prepare food. And I think I think these little things add up uh, to a lot of time when when you look at it all in, in all in the big picture. I think that's right, and I think you know we don't. I don't actually think we need to be worrying about our nutrition. I think we just need to be enjoying it and enjoying our time together as a family. And celebrating the foods that we like and building on what we like. And I think there's almost always, if there's someone in your life, um, like someone who's listening and there's someone in their life that isn't um, eating a whole whole foods plant-based diet and you wish they were more so, or you're like, you've got a partner or a child who um, maybe isn't on board yet, like start with what they like, build from there and try not to worry too much or are they getting enough that are like our bodies are quite resilient and um i think we can be on a journey and we can get there and so working with if they love corn like who doesn't love corn on the cob starting with some like beautiful organic maybe corn on the cob grill it in the summer or you know so many people love um sweet potato do um roasted sweet potatoes and load them up with lots of veggies and some really nice tahini sauce, that kind of thing. Um, these are foods that if you can find something that someone does like and build on it, that's the way to go. And I don't think you need to worry about counting and um, putting everything into a computer program and making sure that everything is dead on. Just worry instead about continuing to increase the um, variety and the beautiful color on your plate of a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, I think uh, I think another source of overwhelm for people is the idea of recipes and that they have to have recipes for everything they make. But when I talk to people who really have a handle on things and who eat, you know, among among the healthiest foods or, or among the healthiest eaters I know, 
a lot of them say things like they'll say, "Whoa, I just start with a potato for dinner," and then I put a f- couple things on top of that that I that I know are healthy as well, and like that that's dinner. And, and I think when you get away from the idea of a meal has to be a square meal with this much of the protein on it and this much of this and this much of the vegetable, I think it, it, it frees you a lot to just eat eat what seems good and what what you're that's right for. load it up with all the veggies that you like and maybe add in a veggie that you're like that's new to you or that you're not sure of and that's something that we've worked on in our family is um continuing to try new things and we try to be very careful about our language we won't say i don't like this um and i don't really like let our kids get away with saying they don't like something we'll say We'll use the language and said, this is new for me. I'm not sure about this texture. And we'll say, okay, well, maybe, you know, you didn't like the um, um, edamame this time. Uh, maybe next time we'll try it blended into some hummus because maybe you didn't like the texture of it when you first tried it. Maybe it was new for you. So we'll try um, blending it into some hummus. You could try edamame hummus next time and try a food in different ways um, until suddenly it becomes part of, your life and you're eating it regularly and then all of a sudden you know it's another one of the foods that you can draw upon to put on top of your chili or your salad or your baked potato um to add extra nutrition yeah i like that our our son who is six doesn't like beans he claims and uh that's you know it's like how do, how do you be vegan without eating beans <laughs> um but we found out that he likes refried beans so we can buy these right. these refried beans that from whole foods that don't have oil and they're you know, just beans uh, but he likes them that way, so we're we're kind of wedging our way in with via and so often with kids, it's a texture thing rather than a taste mm-hmm. thing, and so it's possible that he just likes that smooth texture, you know. So trying maybe a few different like maybe you tried beans in a soup and like blend the soup, mm-hmm. um, and he might not really notice that beans are in there so much, or he might still like it that way. Maybe try different dips, um, like a white bean dip and a hummus and that kind of thing. Different ways of getting. Um, his the beans in um, without needing to actually eat an individual bean. And then I think trying different beans because different beans have different textures and maybe just like one bean by itself, get a few of the different ones out, like a black bean, a kidney bean, a chickpea, and like look at them and, and touch them and see, you know, which, uh, which one squishes easier and like kid fun things, you know, mm-hmm. describe them and then see if he could try all three and see which one he liked the best or get him to describe the texture of them and that kind of thing. Just playing around with it, starting to open up his mind a little bit more yeah. to seeing if he could, or yeah, just pure, add some, add some of those refried beans into other recipes as well as like a fiber and protein boost into other recipes that he may not even really notice that it's there. Yeah. I like that. I, we always talk about small steps and having people change via small steps rather than giant changes at once and i think with kids it's such a perfect illustration that uh that 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 works so when you're a kid uh, you're not in control of your food a lot of the time and it's all about control actually like that's a (laughs) lot of the arguments that we have with kids around food it's actually more about control and nobody likes being forced to eat something they don't feel like eating or do something they don't feel like doing and food is a very personal thing and it's a place where kids sometimes feel they can start asserting their autonomy and so I think that's where it's so important to build in the identity piece with whole foods, plant-based life, with a vegan life so that kids understand why they're doing it and they feel great about the fact that they're vegan and that they're helping animals or they're helping the planet and that kind of thing. And then 
suddenly they are motivated personally themselves to try these foods because it's like, well, I'm vegan and this is a vegan food, so I want to eat it. I want to mm-hmm. try it, you know, um, rather than being like, this is something my parents are trying to make me do. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I briefly mentioned supplements a few minutes ago. Uh, I think we should probably just pay that off and talk about that really quick before we move on. Uh, what What is your view on supplementation of any kind for adults or for kids? I think... Um, I think that the only supplement that we all, everyone who's eating a completely plant-based diet need to take is B12. Um, We all need to be taking B12 for sure. And we do take our B12. Um, I have myself had um, a problem with low iron. So I do sometimes take an iron supplement. I think that is common, particularly for women of childbearing age who do endurance sports and who are um, vegan, sometimes we do run into a problem with low iron. So it is worth getting your iron checked out and just make sure that you're on board, um, that your iron's okay. And if it is, then that's fantastic. I get lots of sources as well and recommend for my clients lots of plant-based sources of iron, but I do sometimes take a supplement too. Um, I don't think we really need to supplement anything else, but I have had clients um, who really believe in supplementing, say, their magnesium for a better sleep. Some people have reported really good success with that kind of thing. I'm not against those things, but I don't feel um, that we need to, as uh, across the board, that we need to be recommending those supplements. Um, The only one that we all need to be taking is uh, B12. Gotcha. All right. So you mentioned endurance sports, and that was the other thing I wanted to get to um i think when we met for coffee in toronto you mentioned running all night for something was that was that you or was that somebody else <laughs> oh i think that would probably be me yeah. <laughs> yeah i know you said that some of the kind of the answer to where you get the time is sometimes it comes yeah. from your sleep um but so what you do is, is interesting you you're a marathoner half marathoner ultra marathoner but sometimes you speed walk them instead of run them yes i have kind of transitioned to becoming a speed walker Um, when we first, when our three kids first moved in with us, we had Fern who was two at the time. And then we, um, adopted three more kids. It was like really stressful. I don't know, um, you know how to describe it actually, but it was like really pretty difficult. And I hadn't been running at that time. I hadn't really been running since college. Um, but I decided to start running again, um, during that first year that our kids moved in with us. Um, and it was just like a little bit of an identity thing for me as well, like reconnecting to something that was about me instead of just about being a mom, you know, um, and also a kind of a stress release. And it was wonderful to get out. I like really wanted to run. I wanted to run fast and I wanted to just get all my energy out. But then I found I started getting somewhat tied up in like certain time goals I wanted to achieve. And it started to turn into less of a stress release. And it was like almost like one more task, one more thing to get done, you know, and I wasn't getting as much enjoyment out of it as I had been before. And also my relationship with my kids, things at home were becoming calmer, more stable, easier. And I didn't need that stress release in the same way. So I started shifting to speed walking, which for me is much more, it's much more Zen. Like it's more mindful for me. I love it. Um, and I walk like sometimes some really long distances. I love listening to podcasts um, while I'm walking. I take it as a time for myself. It's like a time for education, but it's also a time when I get some really great ideas. I tend to 
get good ideas for my business um, or, you know, uh, blog posts I want to write or ideas for things I want to do um, with our family uh, while I'm out walking. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. I mean, I, I experienced a lot of those same things, or at least I've always thought that I have, uh, as a result of easy running and not doesn't happen during the workouts because i mean tough workouts because those are those are different you kind of get into a different zone and i think all you can think yes. about is when can i stop running uh, yes. and there's there's a good physiological reason for why that why that might be um but i've never really considered about you know that maybe it's not that you need to be running maybe walking would do the same thing uh how similar is when you go out for a long speed walk i mean how how similar is that to a long slow run and is it and why is it for you? Do you think it's a, a more relaxing or more more mindful state? Well, for me, I think it's partly just about um, I'm less attached to a certain goal in terms of time or pace. Um, and I think that um, also I have had some issues with injuries before that I don't seem to get with speed walking as much as I did with running. So, um, but I think really in terms of the mental state that I get in and the physiological response, um, it's it, for me, it really is the same, the long walk versus a long run. I feel some of those same um, physical responses to being out there and just going into the zone, you know, um, and where I feel like my mind just works very freely at that time. And I, I'm able to be, think very creatively. Right, right. So when I think of speed walking, to me, that seems harder and more stressful than just running really slowly. Is it, I mean, what exactly defines speed walking? Are you, are you walking in a different way? Is there a different form yeah. that you're using? Is it, do you have to be pushing yourself the whole time or can it just be a regular walk? Uh, so it depends on, on the pace, but yes, um, speed walking is, um, there is a particular form and it is that sort of funny, you probably like maybe had a giggle at it before <laughs> watching right. the Olympics yep. where like your hips are moving and, um, you, the key is to make sure that one foot always stays on the floor and you're walking in a way so that you're going straight. One foot goes in front of the other. So if you were walking along a line, it would be like one foot and then the other onto the line, but your hips are moving back and forth. Okay. I actually um, find that when you're speed walking, you can um, travel faster at a faster pace and it's more efficient than power walking. Just when you think of sort of a normal arm swinging your arms kind of walking fast walking pace it's easier to get a fast pace speed walking with that form where you're swinging your hips than it is power walking um and so you know you may think it looks a little bit funny i actually people tend to always like i get a reaction for sure if i'm out training speed walking people like laugh or like give me a high five or something like that people always smile because it, it does look a little bit funny but um it's a lot of fun and i really enjoy it and i do power walk too i don't always speed walk i also um like speed walking race walking whatever you want to say but i also do just like fast walking just like um sort of normal form um but just fast. Gotcha. So, so I, do I mean, I've, it, it does look funny. I'll, I'll give you that. It I, does. I will admit that. <laughs> um, but I've always wondered, like for ultra marathons, I mean, mine, my, my hundred mile that I did a couple of years ago, three years ago now, took me 28 hours or something, which when I, when I figured out the mile pace, it was like 17 minutes per mile. And I've, I've right. always wondered, like, what if I had just started walking from the very beginning of that and kind of, you know, kept up a yes. brisk pace for sure, because it was hilly and it would have, there would have been some miles that were definitely slower than 17 minutes. But, uh, I've, I've just wondered as an ultra marathon strategy, how, how just pure walking would do. So you, have you done some, some ultras at, at just walking? 
Yes, I actually did one last weekend. So I did um, I did a 24-hour um, ultra marathon called That Damn Hill in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it was a 24-hour race. I did speed walk. I probably speed walked the first half and then power walked the second half. Um, by the end, I was just like probably um, not even really power walking and neither was anyone else. Like right. most people were walking by the end of it, <laughs> right. you know. But uh, but I, I decided um, to stop after. After 100k, so I hit 100k at somewhere around 20 hours and and stopped there. But um, I did walk the whole thing, and I actually do think that um, it is possible to achieve um, pretty good distances by starting out from walking right from the start. Yeah, I I would definitely. It's worth, it's worth a try. You should give it a try. <laughs> you don't even have to. You don't even have to speed walk. You could just walk at a brisk pace and see what kind of distance you're able to cover. Right, right. Well, maybe one day yeah. I'll do that. We'll see. Um, or okay. even do some of your. I know you've done um, intervals before in your in your training where you do like some walk run. So you could do you could build that into your ultras too. I know you probably walk the hills already, but you could. Build some walking intervals even on the flats or the downhills. Too. Yeah, I, and I think that's a really good strategy. Even if you're not going to go all the way to, to walking all the time. Uh, for my first 100, partly out of out of being conservative and cautious and not, not wanting it to be the worst day of my life, I uh, from the very beginning, I think I ran 25 minutes and walked five minutes. That's how every half right. hour was broken up. Until, until it got to the point where I was walking way more than that just for other reasons. Uh, but, sure. but yeah, I think absolutely. For a first-time ultra, it's a great idea. I mean, at, the, at a minimum, walk the hills, but but probably even more than that. Yeah. So exactly. you did your own unsupported self-styled Ironman this past summer. I did. Can we, can we call summer, that an Ironman yeah. or are we going to get in trademark trouble for that? Maybe well, we call I, it yeah, Iron I, I, maybe, I don't know what we could, we could call it, um, Tin Man maybe, okay, but, perfect. uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it doesn't officially count as an Ironman for sure, but I did follow the distances, mm-hmm. um, that are recommended in the, Ironman um, guidelines or whatever. So um, I did um, a bike. Uh, first, I actually switched the order because I did my swim in a pool and I had to work around the time that the pool was open. Mm-hmm. So I did the bike first and um, I just did that riding um, on uh, a, tr- a trail partly and then on the roads out to Hamilton, Ontario and back to Toronto. And then I did my swimming in a beautiful outdoor pool right down by Lake Ontario here in Toronto. And then I walked, I speed walked um, a marathon at the end of that. And I did that this summer all on my own, just set out. I just used like um, map my run to plan out the distances and um, and then, uh, you know, I stashed a few uh um, water bottles and uh, my change of clothes and stuff like that along the way. And I also just went into, like, I even went into, like, some 24-hour coffee shops and, and stuff like that to use the washroom and get a drink and stuff in, in, in the overnight time. So, wow, I bet they um, appreciate yeah, that. it was super fun. It, yeah, oh, well, <laughs> yeah I, I don't think they even really knew that I was doing <laughs> anything they're just like i'm just a normal customer to them so uh yeah it was good it was you know what i love (laughs) oh yeah um uh i love doing my own events i actually really enjoy that because you can set it works well if you have a busy life because you can set just exactly the time um i did it during a time when my kids were away at camp so um i knew that i would have the next day 
to have a bit of recovery time and I could have the time to to be able to do the event um, and I could choose the weather. I'm not, a, I don't, I don't love the rain. I'm not a rain person. And so I didn't want to choose a rainy day. So I choose a night, I chose a nice sunny day to do my own Tin Man. <laughs> okay. So this, this fascinates me. Um, I, I can't imagine, <clears throat> and maybe we're just different, but I can't imagine doing everything. I mean, because people talk about Ironman training as just a different level than, than even training for a hundred miler. I mean, regardless of which one is harder and I don't know which one is, uh, the Ironman, because it's three sports just seems to consume your life like nothing else. Uh, to work that hard for something where there's not really for, in my mind, the payoff of, of the race day, the excitement, the crowd, the cheering, the finish line, not so much the medal and the t-shirt and all that, but just the the event, the thing that says this is on this day and it's everyone doing it in this thing. So how, how and why do you would you want to do that by yourself? Like, I mean, I know you said it's convenient for sure. It is more convenient than, than having to deal with crowds and everything else. Um, but where does the motivation come from to do something like that? Well, I had the payoff still of the people that I love most were excited for me and they like really, you know, encouraged me, sent me messages on Facebook and stuff. And, uh, and, you know, I guess I just had my own desire to do it. I just thought, well, I would love to do an Ironman, but you know, I don't really have time to be actually signing up for one and getting organized to go and do it. So Uh I just, you know, it's just my own payoff to say, hey, I did that. And it was really fun. And in terms of the training, I was probably less rigorous than you might um, be if you were signing up for an actual Ironman. I, um, you know, I did buy a road bike and I did do road bike training. I needed to train my cycling to get fast enough and to get strong enough to do the distance and the time. Um, my walking, my speed walking was already up to scratch to be able to do the marathon. So I didn't have to add too much to my training for that. And I was a swimmer in high school and in college, my swimming, I just kind of relied on that it would still be strong enough. I didn't do tons of swimming training. I just did a bit to know like, okay, I'm still okay. And I got into the pool and I was all right on the day and was able to meet the time. So, Uh um, so the swimming was, I, w- I was lucky because I know that's one that often people will be like, oh, I, um, I, can't, uh, I can't do the swim. But the swim, and probably it's easier because it was in the pool, I will say. It may have been easier than doing it um, sure. in some open water environments. But um, yeah, I was able to do the swim relying on some, um, I don't know, muscle memory or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think what it is for me that seems so difficult about it is, that when you when there's an event of that nature, and I I think of it as something longer than a marathon, where where there's that point somewhere halfway through, sixty seventy percent through, when you just want to be done and you just don't want to be doing that anymore, uh, and I think it's I think it's in those moments when I am totally relying on the fact that I'm in an event and like this is an event happening now, and if I quit it now, there's no do this again a week from now because it's. It's I failed at the event that I was doing and that everyone knew was on this date, that I knew it was on this date. Is that not a struggle for you, the, the mental aspect of like, I'm out here doing this thing just because I'm here and I'm the only one doing this? Like, I could just stop and go actually get a coffee instead of just, just peeing in the coffee shop. <laughs> I mean, like, like does, is there a big mental conversation around quitting or is it just pretty much like any other, other ultra marathon or long event when, when, of course, there's that conversation? Um, I didn't really run into feeling the 
feeling the real desire to quit or feeling really tired until I was probably two thirds of the way through the marathon. I was feeling good in the bike and in the swim. And at that point, um, I think I actually called my best friend um, and talked to her for a little bit while I was doing the walk. And she walked down and met me and walked along with me for a few minutes and talked to me. And then I was actually, the very, very end was when I just really was tired. The last, probably the last half an hour, I was really tired. And my husband cycled down. I, I finished down by the waterfront in Toronto and he cycled down and walked the last couple kilometers with me. Um, so I had his support at the end. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't really fade mentally. I was able to draw on um, family and friends to help me through. And the city of Toronto, just like, I don't know, it's a buzz for me just to be walking through the city. And um, I, I love it. You know, people didn't realize I was doing an Ironman, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I was, I was enjoying it. I was just loving being in the city and just drawing on, drawing on the energy of the people around me. Well, it is a beautiful city. I will, I will give you that. When I was there, it was just a really, really nice place, very vibrant, full of energetic, young, healthy people. So it was, it just seemed like a, a fun place to be for sure. <laughs> Good. Well, you have to come back. I definitely will. It is on my list to come back and bring the family. Yeah, come back for VegFest. You've got <laughs> you a go. great VegFest. It's the biggest VegFest in North America, I think. So you know come what? Back I was supposed September. to speak at that one year, and like three weeks before the event, I realized that I needed a passport to get there, and I didn't oh. have one. So I had to I had to email them and cancel, and I just felt really yeah. bad because I, I think I had been advertised as a speaker there. So right. uh, yes, I would like to do that Next if they time. ever have me back. Yeah, maybe you can put in a good word for me and have them forgive me for that incident. For sure. Oh, they'll <laughs> forgive you. Yeah. Um. All right, so... We haven't mentioned yet that you don't, is this true? You don't have a car? Is that right? Am I correct Do there? not have a car. Yeah. So Four kids, no car. I think that's cool. I've, I've always <laughs> fantasized about that. But then when it comes down to like, okay, I'm not actually going to do that. Am I? It always says, no, you're not going to do that. Um, what, so is that just an environmental thing? Is that, that the main reason? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, we live in a big city. Toronto's a big city. We have good transport links and all that kind of thing. You know, um, I think if we are living out in the suburbs or out in the country, it would be trickier to not have a car. Sure. So, um, yeah, our main reason for not wanting to have a car is the environmental thing. But I also personally think it's just like a really big waste of money. Like, um, you know, you put tons of money into the cost of the car and the insurance and then the gas. And it's like, why not be out using your own energy instead on your bike or walking and getting fit and meeting your needs that way. And um, to me, that's always made more sense. But I understand that that is somewhat a luxury in an urban environment compared to a rural one. Sure, I, I think it is. But, but you know, the vast majority of people living in an urban environment still don't choose to do that because it's just way easier and more convenient to have a car. So I think it's a really, really cool thing that you do that. And I, I can totally just see how that would lead to you know, in, in the context of all this other, this life that you're sort of putting together for yourself, that, that involves all these conscious choices that aren't necessarily, necessarily the easiest choice, uh, that it just leads to more fulfillment and happiness. And like you said, I think, you know, I think it's just way better for your, for your mind and your body to go out and walk for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, than drive somewhere for seven minutes. Uh, sure. And, and I think it's good for our family too. Like in the summer when we go, there's so many festivals and events to do in Toronto and like, you know, the summer we went down to Toronto Island and um, we bike down there as a family or we go to Harbourfront and we bike there. 
And the kids then, like, somehow it's the getting there is also a part of the experience. And they understand the value of the journey as opposed to just getting the car and, and arriving there and what, and being on their screens the whole time. So, mm-hmm. and it's, it, it's a shared experience too, to cycle down there together. And our kids are competent even on the streets of Toronto, which is like pretty, it's a busy city and they're competent to, to know they have good road craft. They know that they know all the street signs. They know how to, how to handle their bike safely and well, even though they're fairly young and they can ride well in traffic. And I think that's another confidence booster for them and another way that we bond together as a family. Did you call it roadcraft? Is that what you said? I did. I called I like it roadcraft. Is <laughs> yeah. that a Canadian word? It sounds like a German word. I think it could be. It could be British, actually. My husband's British, and that's what he calls it. And I think it's good. I like that. He'll he'll compliment our kids like good roadcraft, Willow. <laughs> that was well done. <laughs> that's funny. The only thing we do is Minecraft in my house. Oh right, yeah. There's there's quite a bit of that. I have to say as well. We do we do our kids do have some screen time and and indulge in Minecraft and stuff like that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we actually do very little of that. I mean, and um, it's something that I really struggle with as a parent. Uh, perhaps if I looked and looked around, I probably could find some good solutions. But uh, I I just wonder that as, as the kids get older, like what what do we do with with the screen situation? Because it's it is an important thing. I mean, you don't want to have a kid who's computer illiterate by any means, uh, but I just, I know how much time I wasted as a kid playing video games, and it was a lot, and I just wish my parents had, you know, I wouldn't have liked it then, but I really wish now that I would have not spent six hours a day or whatever it was playing video games. Do you, how, just, I mean, kind of aside, I guess, from what we're, well, maybe it's not, maybe this is part of what we're talking about. How do you, uh, I mean, do you, is, do you have a structure around that, or is it just sort of a, a organic thing that just happens, and you just say... We- we don't let our kids have um, screen time during the week. We let them have some screen time during the weekends. In the summertime, we're a little more relaxed about that. Mm-hmm. They may get a bit more screen time during the week. But during the week, there's like, I don't know. It's like life is busy. There's lots to do. Our kids do swimming lessons and our kids are in gymnastics. And um, they also love to play together. And they, um, you know, we're trying to encourage them to enjoy reading and they love to help cook um so there's always lots to do and we don't need to um you know turn to screens for entertainment for our kids or for a babysitter sometimes it's tempting to do that you know to keep them busy and quiet for a while with screens but i think you know if you take the time to engage and to spend time with your kids and that means also being accountable yourself that you're not just sitting there on your screen right Mm -hmm. um that you're also like, and that's for me to say that too, because it's tempting for us as adults to like pick up our phone and be like, oh, this is work. I have to like respond to this email or something. But in fact, when we're with our family, we should be focusing on family and, um, you know, making those bonds. And then it's okay too. I think it's fine for the kids to have some Minecraft time um, on the weekends and have a bit of chill out time for a few hours. Yeah, me too. We're, we're very much in the same boat with that whole thing. So, uh, that that's good. I'm, I guess I'm I'm a little concerned about someone hearing this, and you know, someone who does rely on that thing to be the babysitter, and and someone who, and not not judging them in any way, but just for whatever reason, has too much going on where they just it just like they're rolling their eyes and saying, "I this is all sounds wonderful, but it also sounds like a fantasy world." Like, who really can do all this stuff? I mean, what like what do you say to that person? Do you, do you have a, a place to start or? Um, uh, you know, just just a reason why it has worked for you. I mean, and, and I do, and this is I do, and this has been a journey for us, Matt. Like we didn't get to this place right away. And a few years ago, we did use screens more often, and there were times where I probably did use screens in order to be able to have time to be able to cook and that kind of thing. But 
I would always try to at least involve one kid with the cooking um, and maybe let the others have a bit of screen time and rotate who that person is. And I think, you know, it's building up towards um, having the kids not need the screens as much. So whether you put a time limit on to say, you know, you're only going to get an hour a day or whether you only let them have screens at certain times or only certain types of screens, like doing more educational games or stuff like that. I think, you know, you can take it in steps and have a lot of compassion for yourself. Every family's different. Every kid is different. And so, you know, I don't think there need to be hard and fast rules, but it's about making sure that you are having time where you are bonding with your kids. And I do think it is important to be building in, skills for your kids in the kitchen and also identity around healthy eating and healthy food. And in terms of building skills for our kids, I know you're really into cooking these days Mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. And what we did with our kids, we watched um, a series of junior master chef with our kids just to get them to see. Now I know the food there isn't all plant-based, but we were able to, the kids were able to see like, Hey, like, kids our age are producing these amazing meals. Like it's something kids can do and it's cool, right? It's something that kids um, can value. And uh, so then I did with each of our big kids and Fern probably will start with her soon. I did an internship with them. So I called it an internship in the kitchen where they had to develop certain basic skills like teaching them basic knife skills and teaching them how to use all the different kitchen equipment like the food processor, the pressure cooker, that kind of thing, so that they have those skills and they understand the food. And then the graduation from the internship um, is uh, them being able to cook an entire meal for the family. And then they get to have a treat, like go to a movie of their choice with a friend and a parent, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and make a really big deal of them doing it as an internship. We use that internship concept in other ways in the family too, but... Um, rather than like it's your job to help mom and come and like do this chore it's like this is your training and this is your um, you know you're developing these skills uh, and you're valued as a member of the household and so I think that concept is worth for calling it an internship yeah I think that's really cool what what uh at what age would a kid typically make a meal for the whole family uh our kids have done that at age nine okay yeah, even something simple. It can be like pasta and a pasta sauce, that uh-huh. kind of thing. Um, I think they could help even like, you know, for sure, I'm, as I'm sure you know, kids can help even younger than that. But in terms of doing it independently, nine is probably the youngest we've done. But I wouldn't be surprised if some kids could. Do, well, I mean, as you've seen on MasterChef, some kids are younger than that. So it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Neat. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, last thing I want to talk about is... Uh, to get some tips from you about how do you how do you get make this this living abroad thing work sure. with school? So is it it's a, you is it like official homeschooling that you're having to apply for or whatever that would would be? I, it's probably different from the U.S. and Canada, but how, there how may be work? differences. I'm not sure about that. We what we did is just and we're doing it again this year. We're going just for one month this year. Um, we did two and a half months years ago Costa Rica. We're going this year to Mexico, and um, a year in advance, so well in advance, got in touch with the principal of school and um, asked permission to be able to do this. We explained um, gore for our kids during this time and why we wanted to homeschool and asked permission to be able to do so. And um, we got that permission and that support of the school. 
So um, it is officially homeschooling. Our kids were officially like transferred to being under our care for schooling during that period. Um, and we did follow the Canadian curriculum, although um, we did also um, interject. We took advantage of being Costa Rica and interjected some like we had our kids do a unit on turtles and, um, you know, learning about the um, rainforests and the oceans and things like that, because, you know, that's the environment we were surrounded in. And it was exciting to be able to draw on those natural opportunities. And um, we homeschooled our kids very, we started from very early in the morning. So we would get up. I did a workout with our kids first when they first got up. So we actually did Jillian Michaels together <laughs> in the morning. We would get up and do a workout first. And then um, we would start schooling very early because it tends to get really hot in the afternoon. So we'd put in um, around six hours um, in the morning and then early afternoon. And then the, every afternoon was like, let's go to the beach, let's go hiking, let's go into town and go to the market. Like always um, an adventure in the afternoon. Hmm. That That's really neat. Did you feel competent or the need to learn how to be a teacher or did you feel like because they were your children that that it was just you know something that could that could happen pretty easily I felt comfortable enough with my skills I mean you know I've done um I teach adult learners at university it's right. it's a bit different that. but yep. but I felt I mean I already helped my kids with their homework so we kind of started building in um, a bit of like learning time with mommy and daddy, um, even more than we were already doing, even before we went to kind of have that foundation, have that structure there. Um, but yeah, I felt comfortable. I mean, we took some, we took some curriculum books, um, with us. So we weren't always having to come up with all of the lessons and all the exercises ourselves. Like sometimes we were using worksheets and stuff like that. So we weren't starting completely from scratch. Um, but yeah, I felt comfortable with being able to, um, help our kids. And I think they progressed so well academically while they were there. I mean, they made huge gains in their academics and particularly in their ability to focus. I think sometimes in school, in a big classroom, kids can kind of get away with like not always paying attention but sure. when there's only four kids there you can kind of see when a child is starting to lose focus and you can help them focus back in and at the beginning when our kids were assigned a task they could probably only work for like five to ten minutes um, on that task and then they needed redirecting and by the end they were working like 45 minutes to an hour on a task with no problem um, with minimal um you know, support. I don't mean we were down at the beach, like having a, <laughs> having a drink while our kids were working. We were there with them, but it was like they didn't require that like one on one time. We were able to like set them on a task. They got to work, and then we could just come back and check in with them. Right. Gotcha. Oh, that, that's really interesting. And and you would so you would say then, aside from just being a really cool thing in another place and a way for them to be immersed in another culture and have a totally different facet of their education, then. Um, uh, aside from all that, still just just the process of kind of being not not one on one, but a very very small group with you. That that itself was beneficial. Absolutely, I think academically it was beneficial. I think um, skills wise, it was beneficial for our kids. I think in terms of bonding with us um, mm -hmm. and creating our family together, it was really beneficial. And our, we took leaps forward with the kids in terms of their um, enjoyment of. Um, a plant-based diet when we were there too because all the food was so fresh and they were trying all these new tropical foods and um, they were able to see 
like bananas and plantains like growing in the garden and stuff. So that was really exciting to them. And I think they connected more with the food there. Very cool. I, well, I'm personally inspired by that. And uh, hope yeah, you have should a definitely story. do it. Yeah, I, I really like yeah. it. I need to figure out the uh, the homeschooling situation and all that, but um, we're we're close. It's some, definitely a, a big priority for us. That's cool. All right, well, Pamela, this has been really really fun. Uh, I've I've learned a lot myself, and I hope people have learned a lot, and and maybe even more than that, been inspired. Just just seeing, like I said, it it I think to some people looks like a fantasy world, right? That that you've gotten all these things doing. You know, you're doing your thing with with all in all these different areas, and and you're consciously deliberately living which i think is just a, a really really cool thing uh so i hope i hope people are excited by that in the way that i am uh what have you got going on coming up or where can people find you online and i know you've got your blog at, at pamela ferguson.com which is how do you spell it out do you say like double s or something yeah say, that's right there's two s's in my last name f-e-r-g-u-s-s-o-n okay and we can and assume on... we know how to spell pamela p-a-n-e-l-a <laughs> yeah that's right All exactly right. uh what else and on Facebook at uh, Dr. Pamela RD and on Twitter at Dr. Pamela RD. Those are great places to follow me. And I love hearing from people. So definitely don't be shy. Get in touch. Let me know if you've got any questions or just any feedback from the episode. I'd love to um, hear your ideas. And if anyone gives it a try to go out for a speed walk or a power walk instead of a run sometime, let me know what you think of that too. All right, and uh, I saw you were speaking at the Peapod conference next year? Uh, I spoke at Peapod last year. Um, I don't think I'm speaking there this year coming up, but I am speaking there the following year, which is like quite a ways. (laughs) since. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And do you do any sort of, I know you have the, the... practice in Toronto. Do you do anything virtually? Like can people, could people look you up and say, do some Skype stuff with you or is it all in person? Definitely. So I do, um, Skype counseling as well. And I have had, um, American clients, um, work with me via Skype as well as, um, of course my clients here in person in Toronto. Good. All right. So, so check out PamelaFerguson.com. We of course will link to that in the show notes. And if you're listening on iTunes or, uh, that other thing, Stitcher that people listen to, um, it'll be in the title of the podcast so you will see pamela's name and how to spell it um so hopefully there shouldn't be any issues finding it all right okay uh, this has been good last thing we didn't mention was the toronto nomad athlete group so i will just put that out there uh it, it's a really nice way to meet people the your local nomad athlete group go to nomadathlete.com slash groups and you will find the one near you pamela it's been a bit that's been a good experience right my is that safe to say Oh, it's been fantastic. And we host once a month, we host No Meat Athlete meals at our house. So we have um, uh, anyone who's in the Toronto No Meat Athlete is welcome um, to come to our house. We serve um, whole foods, plant-based meal. We talk about races and, uh, you know, any running trips, uh, running tips, that kind of thing, you know, know, um, soothing people through injuries and just providing support and just being a community. So um, Dave and I, we host that here at our house, but um, even the online group is such a wonderful support, just knowing that there are others out there and we share information and support each other. Very cool. Well, thank you for being a part of that. And and thank you for being a force for good in this world, plant-based and good parenting and all that other good (laughs) stuff. So thank you so much for your time. This has been fun. Uh, And I hope to connect with you again soon. You too. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for everything you do. And I just absolutely love listening to your podcast while I'm out um, on my walks. You guys always make me me smile. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) There's always a good laugh and a good tip too. 
Good. Well, then you will love this episode. I promise you that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.